Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 140, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, the New York Times analyzes textbooks and finds out that the information can vary greatly from state to state, even though the books are from the same manufacturer. And we're talking coronavirus. What will it mean for schools? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, two experts from Purdue talk about teaching climate change and what educators should know and can do to help their students. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by the principal that just gave her entire staff the day off for leap day, Christina Pollard. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I took the day off too. <laughs> right? I know. It's kind of nice to hit on the uh, the weekend, right? A little extra day there. Oh, uh, you know, that's actually my birthday. Really? I was born on a leap day. Wow. Which is weird, right? It is weird. So how old are you like actually? I'm 10. Wow. 10 years old, right? Yeah. As of Leap day. I'm 10 years old, so check do you the out. Math. Do the math. I know. That's... So you're like the only person I know. Right. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. The big, the big 40. So uh, that's, oh, that's, that's weird so as special. well. That's weird because I Listen, remember my dad turning 40 like it was yesterday. So. Yeah, but it's different. Um, turning 40 now is way cool. Yeah. Because it's cool to be in your 40s. I promise. Is it? That's, yes. That's good to hear. Because I don't know how to take it just yet. Well, we're going to see how things work out there. How, how are things going for you? Have you had a good day? I've had a great day. Good. You know, we're going to jump to the teacher's lounge here, but there's something that I'm going to just kind of step on your toes. I know I know, we let you go first. Oh, you always hit me up, so just keep it coming. Yeah, well, I want. I think we have to talk about the coronavirus. Ugh. And I know it's kind of on everyone's mind and... You know, there's you're gonna have two sides. Some people saying maybe we're overreacting. Some people who are you know doomsday preppers and getting ready. But I'm gonna interrupt you so I can get yeah. some hand sanitizer. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, and and it does worry me a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and I guess really is what, the context I want to talk about is how it could impact schools. Like, let's just say hypothetically that this thing, you know, you start having lots of people getting it. It's spreading around the country very fast. They mm-hmm. aren't able to test fast enough. Mm-hmm. And schools say, all right, we've got to shut down for a little while. In fact, we've already seen this elsewhere. I think in some other countries, I we, want to say it was Japan. We have, but you know, we've, we've had that issue before with the flu. So, With but, these extreme strands of the flu, some schools have already experienced the need to have to, you know, shut the entire school down and disinfect. I think Oklahoma had some schools that did it last year. Yep. Um, but and I heard today that Japan, I think, shut down schools all the way through their spring break, which is they you know, need March, it to. April. They need it to. So what if we get there? Like. Is this even a topic of discussion or through emails um, or anything like in your district yet? Or what I, w- I will say yes, because you, you understand that school administrators are always on different listservs that push out critical information um, that keeps us posted. So, of course, we've seen a lot of things about keeping our buildings sanitized, making sure that our teachers have disinfectant wipes and um, disinfectant spray. But we start having those conversations really at the very early part of the flu season mm-hmm. um, when we start 
start seeing it hit our schools, our um, director of safety will automatically start having those conversations with us. But even as we're watching the news, we've heard recently that the CDC is really looking for a major spread to begin occurring in the United States. Right. So they are already pushing out different memes and flyers and things that are kid friendly um, that we're able to use on our social media to go ahead and start reminding people to constantly wash their hands, reminding teachers when you see them traveling with their students, Oh, you're not traveling with hand sanitizer and just going ahead and taking some steps now. Like, you know, the school that I'm serving in, I'll just go ahead and be, you know, really honest that I don't have a ton of children who's parents are flying in and out of the country or that are traveling on different um, vacations abroad. That's not necessarily, you know, a part of their lifestyle right now. But regardless, you're going in public places. Yeah. I mean, if it, if it starts to spread, there, it doesn't matter. where. So it doesn't matter where yeah. you go. And I'll be honest, as as a mother um, who's, you know, my child goes to a very large um, high school, but even as a principal, I have already started thinking about it and I'm a little, you know, I'm a little terrified. They don't know what to do about it. So, okay. Hypothetically speaking, they shut down schools and, and coincidentally two episodes ago when we were talking to Dr. Ben Burnett after Hurricane Katrina, right. he talked about how they closed school for three weeks. It was, and I was here. I was a teacher. There you go. And and you, you guys were able to get back on track and make up all the time, but let's just say we, you have to close for six weeks, seven weeks. But even so. when we closed for those three weeks, there were a number of procedures that had to be um, followed, um, you know, identifying and locating every child. Were they safe? Were they in town? Right. Identifying and locating every staff member. Were they safe? Were they in town? So if you see something like um, the coronavirus come through our actual um, community, there's a whole lot more than just shutting down a school. You've got to be able to track your people and, and, and see if everybody is OK and who needs what. Now, unlike 2005, we're further along with communication and the Internet uh, yes. and so forth. But could your school or do you think other schools potentially could conduct classes remotely? Is that a, even a possibility or districts? Ready oh, for it's that? absolutely a possibility. If you're if your school is operating on the Google suite and, you know, your teachers have Google classrooms and of course, every child in, in, in most schools, um, probably down to third grade have email addresses. So you can, you know, absolutely, you know, uh, operate your lesson through a Google classroom or even push out videos um, to mm. keep children engaged. I mean, a, a number of schools are already doing that now because of the excessive amount of snow days that they've had to endure mm. this past season. Right. It's just, it, we're just in a weird time. Like, I, I really don't know what to make of all this. Uh, I don't think all I know is you better keep your eye on the news and pay attention. Right. And then it's got to be even, you know, you work in an environment like we're recording this in a very professional environment. There's these pe people here, are all adults. That's you right. work in an environment where you're you're surrounded by kids, and you can't always trust kids to be washing their hands. Oh, you listen, know, six they times cough and sneeze and, right in your face. Hi, right. Miss Pollard. Go, go, go. And so, in some ways, you're almost <laughs> at a ground zero type area um, at so all it, times. It's got to be a little nerve wracking, mm -hmm. I guess. And I understand the um, schools may need to shut down. And I guess maybe not nerve wracking for us because this is what we do. Um, and with these are our practices every day. Mm -hmm. But you know, now your fears or your concerns are heightened because, you know, people are dying from the coronavirus. It's right. not just infecting you and making you suffer for a little while. People, thousands of people have lost their lives, um, you know, so it's it's scary. And, and I've had I've had people tell me, and I'm just kind of getting on my soapbox a little bit, and I even thought this, like, well, the flu has already killed, I think, six 7,000 people this year mm -hmm. um, worldwide. And this, right. this hasn't been as deadly. But percentage-wise, the mortality rate on coronavirus is higher than the flu, where apparently with the flu, it's under a percent. And Correct. with this, I think it's somewhere between 2 and 3%. And that's kind of what's scary, I it, guess, about yeah, it. Yeah, but even with the flu, we have 
the options to get a vaccination. Yeah, that's true. Um, and you know, and so you you're already aware of it and how it can impact you mm-hmm. medically. The coronavirus is not necessarily new, but it has not been talked about in forever. If you look on the side. Mm-hmm of any type of disinfectant, specifically um, no support of brand here. But if you look on the side of a Lysol bottle. It says coronavirus on it. It does. But it's prevents. But it's a different type of coronavirus, I think. It is, but the thing is just so many people are not educated about it to yeah. understand that the difference, you know, the difference is these strands switch out and mutate and become stronger right. and there's not you know, um, a cure for it, which is what we've seen over the last few years, even with the flu. Um, The strains are different. They're stronger. They're, you know, making people um, suffer a whole lot more. Right. Well, it's going to probably be a topic that we continue to talk about uh, in a perfect world. Over the next few months, for sure. And we won't have to talk about it anymore, but you just never know. And I feel like it's on the the forefront of a lot of people's minds. So I felt like we had to go ahead and bring it up. Um, So tell me, what do you know? What's going on in the teacher's lounge today? Well, you know, all across the nation, we are constantly focusing on improving student achievement, um, taking a look at our standards. And U.S. history is a little bit uh, in the spotlight right now. Mm. I read an article recently about two states using the same publisher for their brand new curriculum, but yet they're printed very differently. This this was the New York Times, right? I'm telling you. And the New York Times laid it out beautifully and gave us very clear examples of how politics play a role in what uh, school districts in different states are using or providing for their children in order to give them their their actual historical accounts. So you're basically saying that history is written two different ways in the same country. I will go ahead and say it's written three different ways because what we've argued for many, many years is that a lot of important information has been left out of the history books. Um, And at this point, the article highlights um, just the issue with history being hmm, softened and sweetened up a bit Mm -hmm. um, so that it is presented in a much more uh, or a much less controversial way, which is how it's laid out for Texas, according to that article. But in California, it seems like the tide has turned and um, their political stance is allowing a whole lot more information to be shared in their textbooks, making the book even bigger. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting. You said Texas and California. These are two large states with massive buying power. Um, and not only massive buying power, how many seats do they hold? Um, right. And, and you talk about textbooks, I guess, you know, the other states are probably either going to have to pick one or the other, or maybe there might be a few others. But, you know, it, what I'm getting at is these states are driving textbooks for the rest of the country. Probably. Well, well probably- here's what's happening, though. You have authors academians who are selected to write these textbooks and a generic textbook is written based on national standards. Then you have these large states with yes, lots of money and political power who they request for changes to be made in the original book. Okay. So it doesn't necessarily impact every state because you have, um, there are, you know, did you realize that there are special procedures that are required in order to select a textbook company, first of all, well, and then to select sort of board or something, right? Well, there's always a committee yeah. um, that involves a bunch of different people being able to provide their opinion on a textbook. That's for the improvement of the process. That's for making sure that you're aligned to your state standards, but also that they're providing you with all the resources you truly need for high quality instruction. But in this case, the article highlighted that in in these two states particularly, 
They hand-selected who served on these committees as they were devising and developing and editing the books. So so what's the end result here? What do we end up with when all these kids... We're cheating children the truth, well, and period. So, I mean, I think that the effect is pretty, I don't want to say devastating, but you're going to have one group of kids who is getting this information, let's just say as elementary school students or even middle school students, who are going to go into the, the workforce eventually in five to 10 years, and they're going to be have a different outlook on history than the other group. And it it's, just it's continues just the divide, in my opinion. Right. Um, because I'll be honest with you, even in the textbooks, and I'm from California, let's remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, my time, um, or my era, should I say, there was a lot of information that I was not aware of. And then to leave California and come in the deep South Mm -hmm. for college, I was almost hit in the face with a lot of African-American history that I was not taught in school. Okay. So you felt like you got more. Absolutely more. Absolutely more. A clear understanding of the history of the state of Mississippi, the civil war, um, just the truth. Let me just say that. And so then of course, as a parent, I found it Extremely important to make sure that I had those conversations with my children because I've checked their textbooks. There's a lot of things missing. Right. So I look at California and I think, okay, it's a huge democratic state. Am I right? And so basically the article is saying, okay, you have a big blue state. They're making sure that their textbooks provide information about the slave trade, how um, the Native Americans were impacted, why the economy suffered, what reconstruction meant um, to America back then, and how, you know, in the deep south, African-Americans were struggling with um, the Caucasian men who were in charge. It talks a lot extensively about women's rights. But then if you flip right over from the exact same publisher, Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, to insane. the text in Texas, there's a lot of washing down of information. There's a lot of careful words right. used to um, provide a silky explanation of the country's history. Right. And it's it's a kind of embarrassing to the publisher, the fact that they're writing these books. You know, what, I guess the publisher saying, has a hard time, but guess what their job is to do? Make money. Make money. Yeah. And they're making a ton. Yeah. From these large states. And Texas is a red state. We know that. Um, And they want to preserve um, the negative history. And their big thing in Texas is let's highlight and focus on patriotism. Right. I don't know. They're leaving out the truth. I don't know that there's a fix to this. I mean, generally speaking, most politicians are kind of of the belief that, you know, education should be handled at the state level for the most part. So I don't really see this getting fixed anytime soon. Oh, absolutely really. not. And, and especially with the state our country is in right now. Oh, right. no way. It's not even going to be a discussion. But it, but it certainly is worth having a discussion that this is a thing and it's, I don't know, weird. It is weird. But I would like to challenge parents, no matter your background, that you truly be honest with your children. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't require you to badmouth any other race, um, any other sex, etc. But I think that it, it is beneficial for your children to understand where we've come from, how it evolved, and it to and how it impacts where we are right now. I agree, and I think you know you could expose your kids to you know good Ken Burns documentaries or something that maybe you know might shine a light, but maybe the textbook isn't. That's true. Um, Supplement their instruction and give right. them the truth, and teach them kindness and to love everyone. Right, right. That's that's key. Well, are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Always. 
Our guests in today's Bright Ideas segment are two professors from Purdue University. Dr. Andrew Hirsch is with the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and Dr. Daniel Shepardson is with the Curriculum and Instruction Department, as well as the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Science. I invited them both on the show after reading their piece published in American Educator titled Teaching Climate Change, What Educators Should Know and Can Do. Gentlemen, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start off by getting your opinion on where the education of climate change with our youth should rank for you? I mean, is it like, should it be at the top of the list? Should it be like math and then history, then climate change? Like, where does it fall for you? Well, it, it, it's relatively high, obviously, because I think it's the uh, most important environmental uh, issue facing uh, society today. And so I, I rank it quite high. Um, we need to start engaging in activities that are you know, I'm um, going to address our climate issues here and, and protect our environment. So it's it's a top issue. And I'd say it, it's high because it it connects to many areas of of science and mathematics. And, you know, it's a it, it's an opportunity to integrate what students learn along the their academic uh, pathway. I, I want to get some of the hard questions, kind of the hard like political questions out of the way right off the top here. Speak to the to the teacher that may be in an area where, I mean, let's be honest, climate change, for whatever reason, mainly because of dollars, I guess, has become a wedge issue. What would you say to the teacher that's afraid to have this conversation in their classroom? I guess I would say that uh, it affects uh, every body, every area of the country. And uh, if, if you, regardless of whether you uh, accept the fact that the changing climate is driven by uh, man's activities, man-made activities, the climate is nonetheless changing. Farmers can tell you that. Insects know that. Birds know that. Uh, sea levels are rising. So there are quantifiable measures that need to be considered. And uh, it's not a matter of politics. It's a matter of uh, adapting to uh, the situation that is changing. And it's, it's, it's been changing in measurable ways. And, and we've been talking about climate change for at least a couple decades now, but are we not doing enough right now in K through 12 education to talk about this? Is that, do you guys feel that way? Uh, yes. I mean, um, it's, it's not well covered in classrooms, uh, there's piecemeal. yeah yeah it have it tends to be addressed in in uh, piecemeal fashion as Andy said so it might be covered a little bit in uh, in say um, earth science class it might be covered in a different way in biology may not even be covered at all in physics or chemistry which really when you look at uh, carbon dioxide and the whole energy process that those tend to be more physics and chemistry oriented. So it's not well covered in the schools. Uh, there's not really a clearly uh, defined conceptual framework to help teachers to teach about uh, climate change. It, it, it requires students to work with data and conceptual models, which is also challenging for, for students. And uh, so to, to teach about the topic is, 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 is hard to do. And then teachers have all these other curricular goals they need to meet. 
And to address all of those, also uh, then puts time constraints on um, the time the teachers have available to work on these uh, topics in their classrooms. So, you know, if the average teacher can spend three or four hours a year on the topic, we're probably doing pretty good. You know, it's a perfect uh, venue for uh, uh, an upper level, maybe 12th, 11th, 12th grade integrated science course. In your article in American Educator, um, you guys touch on the the idea that of whether or not we should even debate climate change in the classroom. And you point out three common approaches. You say one thing that teachers often do is they teach both the scientific perspective on climate change and they'll teach the skeptics perspective on climate change. You'll say that some teachers may, number two, do encourage students to kind of come to their own conclusion about the cause of global warming and climate change. Or number three, you engage the students in debating about climate change. But but you guys kind of say none of that should really happen. Am I correct? Yes. Um, climate science, climate change is uh, accepted by the scientific community just as any other uh, scientific concept that's taught. And we don't debate uh, other science concepts like photosynthesis or um, earth system science. And so it's really not a uh, topic for debate. It's accepted science. And that's really what should be taught. Uh, they should, students should learn uh, the science, the data, the scientific models behind uh, climate change and humans' impact on our climate. The debate really is about how do we deal with the issue. And so uh, that's where uh, teachers can engage uh, students in debating the ways we can mitigate or adapt to our changing climate. And there are obviously lots of social and economic and health uh, related issues around how we approach this, this issue. So, so you say, yeah, this is, this is it. This is the science. This is, this is the way it is. And, and teachers just need to embrace that and, and lead with that, I guess, as they're going into their lessons. Now, I know you guys found some, as you kind of reviewed textbooks and stuff, you actually found some troubling perspectives, some perspectives that may even contradict what you just said. I guess you say that some textbooks um, almost kind of leave that as an open-ended question. Am I right? Well, uh, other researchers have uh, found those things. We simply kind of summarized uh, their perspective on those analysis, and, and that's correct. Uh, some of the textbooks tend to uh, suggest that this is not a, a, a 100% uh, agreed upon by science, or it's it's uh, lacking some uh, scientific evidence to, to support it. So it's the language that's used in textbooks that kind of conveys this uncertainty about about the issue. What should a teacher do, I guess, if they do have a textbook that almost, you know, they know the science, they know that the scientific community is says, you know, this is happening, this is real, but the textbook says something slightly contradictory to that. I, I guess my, my preference would be to focus on, as Dan said, climate science. That is, let, let's, let's understand uh, the Earth's energy budget. Let's understand the carbon cycle. Let, let's understand the feedback system within the climate system. So let's focus on the science and, and, uh, and get a firm understanding of, of those issues and what, what's the difference between weather and climate. Those are, uh, those are the 
the basic facts one needs in order to really digest the, the, the body of information that's been gathered now over the last 50 years that provides the overwhelming evidence that, yes, the climate has undergone a substantial change. What should teachers do specifically to help students understand climate change and kind of where where be students lacking as you kind of go into the conversation? Well, I think one of the starting points is to make sure they understand, have a good understanding about weather, climate, and climate change. And so I think it's important that uh, students look at uh, weather events, day-to-day weather, and look at that data then in context to climate data, which looks at if you will, weather, daily weather spread out over 30 years to calculate averages or means for our uh, weather that becomes climate. And then we can look at how uh, day-to-day weather fits within the context of that 30-year climate period. And we can see how it's similar or different. And then we can look at it in larger uh, data frames up to, uh, to say, 100 years. And again, we can put it all in a context of uh, past data. Is this where you kind of recommend what you call an event diagram, like having students work on one? Uh, that could be uh, included at that time. Uh, the event diagram is a, is a nice uh, technique or tool. Uh, it kind of helps make students thinking visible, kind of helps scaffold their thinking. And the idea there would be to trace uh, an event through the different spheres to look at how it's impacting uh, the Earth's system. So yes, that would be an excellent uh, location. So you could look at how burning fossil fuels to generate electricity might impact the atmosphere or how it might impact uh, uh, the hydrosphere or how it impacts uh, the land and all the connections, interconnections between between that event. Is there a particular topic about climate change that you think students and, and maybe even in some cases teachers have trouble grasping? Yeah, I, th- I think that understanding the Earth's energy budget is is a key uh, piece of understanding uh, climate and climate change. So uh, the Earth is warm by the sun, but uh, without greenhouse gases, of which water is the water vapor is the largest component, uh, we would be a cold planet. And uh, the, the, the fact that we have a natu- naturally occurring greenhouse gases is a good thing. And when we increase the concentration of greenhouse gases, it naturally provides more warming. And uh, at the moment, we're out of equilibrium. How important is it to, to have a talk about um, fossil fuels and how do you do that with a classroom of kids? Fossil fuels and, and their use obviously is the major problem really to, to climate change. It's uh, the burning of uh, natural gas, coal, or petroleum that releases the extra uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that, that's creating our problems. So really, uh, climate change is an energy problem. And so we have to start looking at uh, um, the data behind the use of energy and what that might tell us about how we could go about solving this problem. And so we can make um, uh, more data-based decisions about uh, solving the issue. 
And so I think a lot of people might be surprised as they look at the data that really transportation is, is probably a bigger problem in emission of, of uh, greenhouse gases than uh, generating electricity. And, uh, so, so we have to look at this data and we want to get kids to look at this data and start thinking about uh, what are ways we might solve the problem based on what we know about our use of energy and its uh, emissions of carbon dioxide. You both went to prestigious universities and you work at a prestigious university and, and you have probably a lot of smart students um, coming through your classrooms. But what's, I don't know if you work with freshmen at all, but do you feel like they're informed on this topic by the time they get to you? More so than in the past. Um, I think I, I think nowadays uh, there's a lot of awareness and I, I do deal with first year engineering students. And I think a good number of them are in tune with uh, the current issues. And, and of course, the, as Dan indicated, those issues provide opportunities, you know, whether it's in improving uh, energy storage in batteries or uh, industrial processes that, that produce carbon dioxide. Uh, so there are, there are lots of opportunities. And where there are opportunities, there are economic opportunities. So, you know, in, in some sense, you, you, you can redirect the discussion uh, about whether you, one believes uh, in climate change or not to an economic opportunity discussion. Uh, solar cells have come down incredibly in terms of their, their, their price, and uh, I think that's only going to continue as, as uh, industries recognize that they can actually save money by uh, turning to renewable energy sources. So how did we get here, and not to go back to the political discussion, but it's got to be frustrating for scientists like yourself to to have such a, a hard-pushing agenda against the science. I mean, how did we get here? What, what, what has happened? You know, the, the discovery of oil um, allowed not only our economy, but worldwide economies to grow incredibly. And, and, and part, of the, part of the issue is the signs of climate change don't emerge uh, immediately. It's, it's a long-term process. And so uh, that coupled with the fact that early measurements, there was a lot of uncertainty and, and mixed methods in, in measuring uh, sea temperatures and atmospheric temperatures, there was a lot of uncertainty. And so it was rather easy to poke holes in, in uh, scientific arguments. Uh, we went through this with uh, smoking, if you remember. Uh, early on, scientists knew very well what the uh, uh, impact of smoking would be. And early on, in fact, in the late 1800s, People, physicists knew what introducing CO2 in the atmosphere would do. So some of the science is quite old, but it takes time for the, sci for the signs to emerge. And that's, I think, one of the challenging things in teaching this that is, as Dan alluded to, climate change takes place over a long period of time. And, and it's not a local, necessarily a local phenomenon. It can be cold in one place and it can be extremely hot in another. 
And so, you know, you can have a senator hold up a snowball and say, what are you talking about climate change? <laughs> and meanwhile, we've set a global record. I think we just set one for the month of January. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's non-local, it's uh, non-linear, and it takes place over a long time period, which is uh, hard for uh, a K through 12 kid to really grasp. The article is in um, American Educator, and you, it's titled Teaching Climate Change, What Educators Should Know and Can Do. Why was it important for you to, to get this message out there? Well, again, I, I think it's our number one environmental issue. Uh, if we don't address um, a warming climate, uh, we're going to find ourselves uh, having to deal with uh, extreme heat, extreme storm events. Uh, the insurance industry is going to be overwhelmed if we don't start addressing these kinds of issues. Um, food security could become a problem. We're going to pay higher prices for food. Um, it's just an uh, it's it's just an uh, uh, an environmental event that we we need to address. Yeah, and and I would say. <laughs> At an even more basic level, the K through 12 kids today, this is their problem. They're going to be dealing with this. They're going to, you know, they're going to be the taxpayers of tomorrow who undoubtedly will be impacted by uh, climate change. So I think it's imperative for the adults in the room to begin educating them about these issues. And if a teacher really wants to, to take a deeper dive into this, I'm going to um, share a link to this article because, I mean, this is, it's several pages. You guys offer a lot of different perspectives in there. Um, and and it really does kind of, like you said, I mean, it, it's going to be probably for a higher level if you really want to dive into conceptual models and stuff, but it's a great place to start. Again, it's um, called Teaching Climate Change and it's um, in American Educator. And we'll have a link in our show notes. Um, Dr. Shepherdson and Dr. Hirsch, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat about this. Our pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, are you guys ready for our pop quiz? Okay. <laughs> All right. It's probably been a little while since you've had to take a pop quiz, but first question, if students could go to school for only one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, we're biased. I'd say science. I, I, I'm sort of torn between mathematics and statistics. Uh, I, uh, I'll go with statistics because... I think I think that the general public has a poor understanding of statistics and how to interpret information, which usually boils down to understanding statistics. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Statistics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you could make an argument for for statistics, even basic understanding of uh, means and modes and ranges, and just being able to make sense out of, of data and graphing uncertainties uh, yeah uh, that's you know the classic example is uh, uh you you go in for a medical test and the doctor says okay uh it's come back positive what what's the likelihood that that it was a false positive you know understanding concepts like that uh are, are you know can be your life can depend on it what does every child deserve? Good quality education. Yeah, good quality education and security. And good parents. Yes. <laughs> What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on this. 
being being, uh, appropriately compensated uh, and appreciated at some level I think you get what you pay for and you've seen teacher strikes in numerous states yeah I I think just uh, uh, a respect uh, for education and a recognition of the importance it plays in our society we can't solve any of today's issues or future problems unless we have um, appropriately supported uh, teachers and classrooms. What's the best gift to give an educator? I'd say thank you. Thank you for caring. Thank you for helping me learn. Thank you for preparing me uh, for the future. Yeah, I would say uh, support and that could be reflected as Dan said in, in, in the ways he suggested, could be reflected in uh, your vote for your local legislatures. Which teacher changed your life? Yeah, that's easy. That was my high school biology teacher. Uh, he really um, got me interested in um, the environment and ecology, and yeah, so he changed my pers- my perspective. And I'm going to say I'm going to share the glory with my fifth and sixth grade teachers because I had a I had a fourth grade teacher who didn't like math and uh, and then my fifth and sixth grade teachers uh, were into science I mean that's a really good question because I think uh, at the university even uh, there's a great deal of emphasis we're a research one institution placed on research and yet as a as a as a as a teacher in, at any level, you have the ability to affect the lives of thousands of, of, of students. And, you know, it's a huge amplifying effect. It is probably my favorite question on the show. And, and I love to kind of sometimes push back and say, have you, you don't always have the opportunity, but have you gone back and told that elementary school teacher, um, if they're still around to, you know, to say thank you, as, as you said? I, I think I'm a little too old to do that if you <laughs> catch my drift. Right. I, I did uh, years ago go back to the biology teacher and, and let them know of, of the importance they they uh, served in my life and and so forth. Um, yes. Yeah, I did do it when I was younger, but I can't yeah. do it now. Right, but that's that is great though, and and I think um, you know all teachers, like you said, would really appreciate that. Um, and last question for you guys: pen or pencil? <laughs> pen. Uh, pencil, I guess. Thank you again for uh, both of your time and all the work you're doing um, in helping uh, the world understand climate change. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.